please turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, if you, if you have one. I'll be reading First Peter chapter three, verses thirteen through seventeen. First Peter three thirteen through seventeen. And now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Father, help me as a pastor unfold Your Word, which has been given once for all through the prophets and the apostles and now contained between the covers of this book, these 66 books we call the Holy Bible. May what Peter is saying to us come through in teaching, in unfolding that which is there. And may You apply the power of Your Word to the hearts of broken, sinful, desperate people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, as we work our way through this, remember the context. As we come to verse 13, Peter had just quoted Psalm 34 in verses 10 to 12. Let's just hear it again. He says, quoting the psalm, Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so his point, as we have seen in the preceding weeks, is that because God is for those who do good, against those who remain in doing evil, therefore, believer, do good. Now we come to this morning's passage starting at verse 13. And he says, that here's his argument as a whole were unfolded. Because if you are in Christ, nothing or no one can ultimately harm you. Built upon that rock, he says, live this way. And at the core, it is pursued at the core of your desires, intimacy with Jesus, which is the root of your doing good fruit. That's where He's going. That's what He's telling the church in this text. So let's see it unfold, starting with verse 13. He's just quoted Psalm 12, and now He comes to verse 13. Now then, who is there, because of Psalm 12, He's for you. Are you in Christ? Are you righteous? Are you pursuing Him? Who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. That's a rhetorical question. Which means He's not looking for an answer. That The answer is implied. No one can harm you. But we know, just in the context, it doesn't mean that you cannot be pained. That you cannot be tortured physically or emotionally or persecuted in this life because in the very next clause he says, even if you do suffer because of righteousness. But genuinely, I think Peter's saying this. Look, 
if you are following Christ, you're battling your sin. Remember, this has been the whole context. You're cultivating these inward dispositions of loving others. It's therefore doing to them what you would have them do unto you. If you're doing that in general, you're not going to suffer for it. People like that. All people like that, pretty much. But he comes now to verse 14. And he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So his point is, pursue righteousness, pursue Christ, pursue those five traits he talked about, sympathy towards others, brotherly love within the church, shunning arrogance and pride of your intellect, and thus don't return evil for evil, but but bless those who may harm you. He says, if you do that, will you be harmed? Usually not. That's what I think it means. But, if you are, which church history has proved over and over, you may be tortured and killed for it, If you are, it's not ultimate harm. That's what I think he's saying. What I mean, listen to how Paul said it in Romans 8. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 31. He says, if, talking to the church, to believers in Christ, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he lays out, people may kill you, they may torture you, demons can be against you, life itself, as hard as it could be, can be against you. You will feel a lot of pain and suffering. But his point is, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So ultimately, no one can be against you. Temporally, they certainly can. In Hebrews chapter 13, 6, the writer says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing, ultimately. In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do to you. And so that's why Peter says, even if you do suffer because of Jesus, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. As Jesus said, blessed are, are eternally happy, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, who is there to harm you if you do good? Ultimately, no one. Okay. That right there in our passage this morning is this foundation upon which he's going to build. Here's the question. You who have fled to Christ, do you believe that? He says, if you believe that, to the extent you pursue trusting that reality, that rock of truth, nothing can ultimately harm you. Therefore, Live, verse 14 through 16. That's what he says. So let's look at Therefore what? How do we live? He says, negatively, not this. Positively, this. This is your life. Not this, but this. Verse 14, have no fear of them. Don't fear. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He means, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter, within three years of writing this, will be tortured on a Roman cross, upside down, because of his faith in Jesus. He says, don't fear them. Why? To the extent... You understand the gospel and what's really at stake. Don't fear those who can kill the body. How much more the little slights that we might experience in 21st century America. You can stand on the rock of the promise of the gospel that he's been laying out to this point. Don't fear them. Now watch the button. 
But positively, what do you do? Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. I think it's an unfortunate decision of the English Standard Version Committee to have translated it that way with honor. Just, Just because I like continuity of the actual biblical words. And some of you know from your other translations, they translate more literally. Set apart or sanctify. So, he tells us to do something. Remember in grammar school, you're learning grammar, verbs, those are action words. And when they're in the imperative mood, it means act this way. Do this. Run, dance, jump, sing. Okay, what what he tells us to do is not fear, but hagiazo. That's the Greek word. Hagiazo. It means sanctify, which means set apart, make holy. Hagiazo. Holy Spirit is hagias. The adjective is hagias. Holy Spirit. Saints, to the saints, is to the hagioe. The holy ones. The sanctified ones. The set apart ones. This is the word. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. This model prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Exact same verb. Sanctify your name. Make make your name holy. Let it stand out. Okay, that's the word. Now he says here, what do we do? Sanctify, set apart Christ in your hearts. In your affections. You know that thing that causes us to do everything that we do? It's called your desires. It's where your will's flowing from all the time. He says, be active in separating Jesus, who He is, to you in your hearts, deep down where you live, acknowledging Him, regarding Him as, in other words, holy, sanctified. In an utterly unique class as God by Himself. Pursue, here's the command of the Christian life, actively this activity of setting Christ apart. I think He's saying nothing more than He just said it in different words in chapter 1 when He says, this is what it is. This is what saving faith is in 1 verse 8. Though you don't see Him, you haven't. Peter had. Peter lived with him. Peter watched him die. And Peter hung out with him eating food and fish for five weeks after he was cold and hard. But he knows that most of us won't until he comes back. But he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice. That's a hard issue. With a joy that's unspeakable. And it's filled with glory. That is setting Christ apart in your heart. Now He says, do this. In order to set Christ apart, especially in our text, as ruler, Lord, sovereign over you. Here's my literal translation of it. Sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord. Get that. In your hearts. In the Old Testament, the idea of sanctify. They would sanctify, make holy, separate the, the candlestick. In the temple, for this use, you don't use it for anything else. It's sanctified. It's set apart over here for that particular use of worship in the temple. Or the labor is sanctified. The priest, you are set apart, sanctified. You can grab stuff and do it. Now he says, sanctify Jesus 
You can't grab Him though like that. You can't put Him over here. That's why He says, sanctify Him in your heart. Meaning, where we act with our hands, He says, that's not what you're doing here. He's saying, your heart works. It acts. It reaches out and grabs a hold of Christ. Set Him apart. In your heart to you is my Lord, is my Master. To sanctify Christ as Lord means to believe in Him, to trust Him, to cherish Him. And especially in the context, don't fear when those who are, who, are, who are lying about you or slandering you and they hate this idea that you love Christ and this gospel you preach, especially in our culture more and more. This says there is no other way that you testify to people that I deserve from this holy God. We just sang to how great He is. You're so great. Jolome deserves nothing but damnation because of his sin. And he knows it. And then he says, you're so great, not only in the reality of your eternality and godness, but you're great in saving, delivering me from what I deserve through that one, Christ. That message that I set apart, you will be slandered for. He says, especially in that context, set apart Christ. Is Lord. He is Lord, ruler, sovereign over that. So, the big picture that we see here then so far is here you go. Don't fear, but set apart Christ. So, feel that. The alternative to living in fear is the activity of set apart set apart Christ in your hearts now how does that work what is, what are we doing in setting apart Christ i can i can set apart a bible or a candlestick and i can and sanctify it for this use how are we setting apart Christ as Lord in our heart in such a way that it produces fearlessness? 500 years ago, Martin Luther was on trial from the magistrates, which was connected to the church and religion. And he was asked, what are you going to do? We want you to reject all these books that you have written and the truth of them. And it wasn't easy. And he feared. And he knew that he could be killed. And he took a whole nother night. What is it about Martin Luther's struggle all through that night that is this what we're told to do? Sanctifying Christ so that he could stand the next day with enough courage to say, unless... You show me through what the Bible says and reason. I cannot say that what I've written is incorrect. How was His sanctifying Christ the power to stand and do that? The answer is right here in our passage as we continue to read. Here's the literal Flow starting with verse 15. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. How? By. Here's how. That's literally what he means. Here's the flow. You do this by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The way to sanctify, set apart Christ in your heart is by always being prepared to give reasons for the hope that is 
deep within you. Okay, how's that work? How is Christ sanctified in my heart by being prepared to say, here's the reason for the hope. How is that giving Luther or ten thousands of other brothers and sisters through the centuries courage to stand in such a time? Because He is their hope. That's His point. That's the bottom line. He's not saying get mere intellectual knowledge of the Gospel. He's saying you cannot defend your hope if you don't have true living hope in Christ. That's where Peter's coming from. That's how he started off the letter. The very first two verses of the body of the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused you to be born again to a living hope. That is why the connection with I have reasons we're going to see because his point is hope doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes out of the message, the person, the gospel of Christ. Jesus, he's saying, is the ground. He's the goal of our hope. And when our hope is strong, then Christ and the gospel shine through. He's saying Christ is honored. He's hallowed. He's separated intimately in our hearts when we show that the essence of our trust or faith or hope, He means the same things here, is in Jesus. And watch in in this text, He assumes that that unseen, living hope in the The news, this message, something has happened in history. And it's proclaimed. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel. He he says there's something about that that prompts people. What is it? I can't see it. You can see this on the street. You can see some people that are, 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 are... hooked on drugs or they're drunks and their whole day revolves around getting more. You can say, I can see you're acting this way. Why? What drives you? I need more drink. Okay. I can see that something's different about the way you used to live or you don't you seem to... You're pretty okay, but you're not jiving with all of the culture. And it bugs them for four and a half years and they finally ask you, okay, what is this unseen thing I can't see that's driving you, this object of your hope? That's what he says in verse 15. Hear it again. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. I mean, that only makes sense if if somehow there's something about the way we're living that says something's different. What is it? So don't miss it. The bottom line he's saying is, He is our hope. True living hope. Because we have good reasons for it. He's saying Christ is sanctified in us more and more as the truth, the gospel, is paid attention to, memorized, meditated upon 
loved, is good to you, and lived. That's his point. And so the question to us this morning coming out of this text is, always, how hungry are you to know the Bible? To know the Gospel? To know the great doctrines which are the reasons for real saving hope. That's what he's asking. He is saying here, it is by absorbing the truths of the message of Jesus. You can just fill those in just with essential stuff. The atonement. Why did he come? You have reasons. I mean, look, historically, Christianity has no reason. It is a farce if that human preacher from first century Judea, after being cold, hard, dead, for over two full days, did not come to life in a new physical form and hang out and talk and teach for the next five weeks. His apostles and at different times over 500 different human beings. It's a farce! There there are reasons. If those reasons crumble, your hope ought to be gone because Christianity isn't built upon mere subjectivity. It's built upon something outside of you that existed long before September 5th, 1961 when Joe LeMay came into the world. So he's saying, what Christians hope in, what Christians believe in is content, meaning, arguments, reasons, the gospel. You cannot have biblical hope if you don't say this. At least there's something. Of content, I hope, in. This text says the key to hope, the key to sanctifying Christ in our hearts, in our affections, is knowledge. It's knowledge of the Gospel. It's knowledge of this book in which the Gospel comes forth. There are strong reasons, he says, foundations for Christian faith in every believer. And he says, be ready. He says, the gist of fearlessness, the gist to live and fight in the life of a Christian in sanctification flows out of the reasons, the knowledge. Which means the clear implication of what Peter is saying to us is that Jesus is not honored. He's not set apart in our hearts. He's not cherished and thus viewed truly for who He is from the outside if it's a hope that's just foundationalist, groundless, If someone comes to me and says, Okay, Joe, tell me, why are you a Christian? Okay, you've been a Christian for almost 30 years. What is this about? Uh, I don't know. I don't have any real reasons. You know, I'm born in in America, in the West. uh, You know, I finally figured, you know, everyone should have a religion. It's a good thing to have a religion. You live life better, kind of functions better. I've got a place to put my kids in church. If that's my answer, this text is saying Christ is not glorified. And He's not glorified. He's not honored because He is not sanctified in my heart. If you cannot say anything about your hope in Jesus, then you probably don't have the biblical hope in Jesus. When he says in verse 15, now just let me make a little note here. 
quote, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Many of you know that that word in the Greek for defense is the word apologia. You, you might start to hear the, how it's come over to English, and especially within the Christian church with apologetics. A branch of, of study that concentrates on how to, to in cultures and throughout ages, we have different cultures, There's, the cultures are saying stuff different, how does the church respond and give answers? The, the, we look in church history and most of us say that Around 150, Justin Martyr was the first apologist. A real smart, educated guy. Knew uh, the philosophers, the Greek thought, and made cogent, strong, intellectual arguments for Christianity. It comes from this word apologia. It doesn't mean to apologize or to say I'm sorry. It means to argue for, to give reasons for, to defend. Okay? But, this text, don't miss this, and it's awesome that we have people that concentrate on that, and that they may write books that help you, okay? But here, in this text, Peter is writing this to little old ladies without an education. To, to, To many who are slaves, Some who are masters, young and old, from every different walk of life. Many of them could not read. And therefore, what Peter's doing here, he is not calling every Christian to become a scholar. He's not calling all these Christians to know the different arguments for the existence of God. You got your ontological and teleological and cosmological argument down. You understand your manuscript evidence so that when someone tries to come at you as a Christian with that, you got it out. That's not really what he's getting at here in this text, though I would never discourage you to understand such stuff if God drives you that way. The context here is many different people from all walks of life. Some can read, some couldn't, that none of them took a Bible home. It's before the printing press. Long time before. And they're extremely expensive. This is why oral, what came out in preaching and Bible reading. Sometimes we worry in our day and age because we want to obey Bible. That's why we always have a section in the worship service for reading Scripture. Paul says, do it. You know, sometimes I wish we could just do it for 20 minutes. But you know what? In our day and age, you get nervous in a church as a pastor. I don't know, what are we doing? Can people handle two minutes? of straight reading. Then, they would come together in homes and probably spend all afternoon hearing Scripture read. They're ingesting it. Hearing preaching from it then. Teaching from it. But read Scripture. But we do have our own Bibles to wake up with now by God's grace in the morning. See, these people though, not professional scholars. They just exist. Little old ladies, little men, young men, young women, slaves, free, very well educated, medical doctors, farm workers. They exist in society, in the workplace, in their families. Here's the point. And there, all of there, to the extent they're walking with Christ, their hope in Jesus is obvious. That's his point. And their hope, according to Peter, is built on content, reason, facts, arguments. And Peter assumes that they are capable of defending that hope. So, I don't think the point here with always be ready to defend means i got to go down to the local bookstore, get a couple good books on apologetics and study those so I can give answers. That's not his main point in this text. His point is not to run to the bookstore. 
but to run to your intimate time with God the Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, on a daily basis, with the Bible. And be honest about where you are at that moment. Where your hope is then. And why? And let Him constantly work on your hope with the reasons He's speaking to you in Scripture. And then, someone comes. What is that hope? You have your unique answer. You don't have a unique gospel. I'm going to get there. But be dead honest about your hope. Okay, now, merely giving your experience is not preaching the gospel. Giving your experience talks about your hope, but now your hope is grounded in the reasons, which is the message. You're unique. In the first century, that little old lady with over the next ten years, the four different people who come out of the world work and say, tell me, Mrs. So-and-so. No one could do it better than her. Because God put her in that place to have those people come up to her. And she would tell what happened to her. And she will give the objective foundational reasons about the person of Christ. The one who was prophesied about in the Hebrew Scriptures hundreds and hundreds of years before. And the propositions of salvation mean statements of and believe in what He did and you will be saved. You get the Gospel. The reasons. How? Okay. Now, in verses 15 and 16... He says, as we do this in our life, as our hope is rising, and someone comes up and says, why are you this way? Tell me about that. you got an open door. He says, as you do this, do it this way. Quote, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So, good reasons, solid reasons. You may be very confident in them. Yes, but your disposition, our disposition, is, is not to be rude or overbearing or arrogant. It's to be gentle. To, to actually really care for that fellow sinner. And he says, with a good conscience. I think what he's getting at there has to do with being zealous for good works. What I think he's saying. Which means if you're pursuing Christ and you're living in unrepentant sin the last seven days and you've got a hard heart, if you're a believer, your conscience will be condemning you. He's saying, not live perfectly. That's unattainable here. He's talking about direction of your life, a repentant life, but there's also fruit bearing. In other words, as you do this, pursue a clean conscience. Okay, sinner, we have 1 John 1 9. If you're in Christ, He is faithful and He's just. It means He will not deny forgiving you if you're banking it on Jesus and what He did for you. To forgive you. You walk in repentance in this clean conscience. Now, got that? Now he says, okay, this life, everything we've heard here for the last 40 minutes, what's the purpose? It's right there. Why not fear, but sanctify Christ in our hearts, growing out of the truth, the reasons for it, so that... Here's the, here's the purpose. See it in the middle? Middle of verse 16. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
So he's saying a hope-filled life, a gospel, that, that message of Jesus, way of living, life, and you got a good conscience, that will put your accusers who slander you, who lie about you, to shame. That's what it says. When will that happen? I don't know. It doesn't say. It just seems to be some indeterminate amount of time. You live for Christ, you actually do some good deeds, and you get slandered for them. Those who slander will be put to shame. That's the flow. You do good deeds, they slander you, they'll be put to shame. How much time does that take? Two years? Ten years? Twenty years? You'll never see it in this life? It doesn't say. Maybe sooner, maybe later. Maybe sooner because as that one who slanders you will come up three weeks later, 27 years later, say, what is it? And you'll tell them. And God will mercifully save them. Bring them into Christ. That's what we saw. Peter, that's... That's Peter, chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, quote, Keep your conduct, that's how you're living now, among the Gentiles, he means unbelievers, keep your conduct honorable among unbelievers, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and end up glorifying God on the day of visitation being saved. So it may be sooner or it may be later on Judgment Day. So, let me just summarize what we've seen so far. Because to one extent or another, every genuine believer's life is in this verses 13 to 16 is happening somehow. Okay? Here, here's my paraphrase of verses 13 to 16. What we just seen. Based upon you. Are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? You cannot be ultimately harmed. Therefore, don't fear what people can do to you, but pursue actively your faith, your hope in Christ. By standing on the firm foundations of the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel, so that in the end, even those who slander you will be put to shame. That's what he says. One more verse. Verse 17 now. He says, Underneath all of that, there's this huge, massive, foundational truth that Peter uses. So just test yourself and see right now if you're in the faith. He uses it to motivate us to obey, sanctify Christ in your hearts. Quote, For. That's how I know it's a foundation. It's an argument. Live this way. For or because it is better to suffer for doing good. If God should so will. Than it is for doing evil. So the flow of the text is, in verse 13, be zealous for good deeds. Verse 16, they revile your good behavior. Verse 17, do this because it's better to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. Why is it better? What do you mean? Because he's saying better. We try to persuade our children. Come on, if you only knew, it's better to eat that or not this. We want to persuade. He's trying to persuade us. This 
is better for you than that. How is it better? This is what his argument is in large context. It is better for you to experience suffering now at the hands of human sinners than it is for you to experience God's judgment on that day. The reason I say that's what he's saying is it's the context. He just came out, remember, of quoting Psalm 34. And what Psalm 34 did for Peter, he says, see, you have two groups. The righteous, and Christians you know that none of us have any righteousness of our own. We stand and live as clothed in is what we want to say by Christ. He, His perfect humanity is the only thing I trust in because I deserve nothing in mine is wretched. But He has two categories. The righteous who bear that fruit and the evildoers. And so his argument is, you ought to pursue Christ and hide in Him. Be desperate for sanctifying Him in your heart so that you will see little buds come out of your life called the fruit on that tree. Because that's much better. God's open to your prayer. It's your Father. The other category is if you're an evildoer, you're a false Christian. He's against you. He says it's better. Let's not miss the point as it close. This passage, it is calling us to pursue, to actively press on the gas pedal down Highway 5 as fast as we can towards every day sanctifying Christ to us intimately, personally, in our hearts. And begging that He work on us. That's called sanctification. The work of the Spirit. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's what He's calling us to. This text is about the seriousness of pursuing our real happiness. Real joy in who Jesus is to, to me. That message, it goes to the world. And it's mine. Where true joy is found. That's what the text is about. And no matter what happens, Peter, whether they crucify you upside down, they can't take that away from you. And so practically, for us here at Abundant Grace, it means think. It means get up in the morning and think. Think along with the Bible. Think with God His thoughts and let Him constantly change what you think and thus our hearts and how we desire and how we feel. The goal of that thinking is not merely intellectual stimulation. It is communion with Christ. It is personally adoring, worshiping. That's just a religious word for treasuring who He is savingly to us. That's the goal. And here's the reality. I'm with you. This is, this is the Christian battle. Depending on where we're at today, 
or next Wednesday might be different for the day, to the extent we feel that that, wake up, think God's thoughts with Him, prayerfully over Scripture, to the extent that feels like a burden, like a drudgery, is to the extent we are desperate for it. We are desperate to sanctify Jesus every day for our own soul's sake. And if you live with other human beings, they'll know it. For their sake, too. Good, my wife's not here. We're desperate for it. Tomorrow's food is not going to suffice. Don't store the manna up for tomorrow. It will rot and worms will come. There's a lesson there. Jesus is the bread of life. So the first thing that Peter calls us to in this text is is not merely to learn good arguments for the Christian faith. It is to pursue your hope in God, which is resting on the arguments for the Christian faith. And there is a difference. So let's pursue Him Passionately. Maybe, maybe God will have someone come up and say, Tell me. Maybe God will have your dad email you after so many years, like someone in this church, and say, Okay, tell me what you believe about this, 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 and this. You got, you got a door. And you pray. Because the more hope grows, it shows. Let's pray. Father, I pray as a broken, undone, sinner, who is so thrilled at the message of Your Son. And on behalf of us sinners, may every heart in here see the beauty, the light of the message of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only hope upon which we will live forever. And may you mercifully, and we may we know it's a gift, cause more fruit in our lives coming out of this Sunday through this week and the months to come than we may have dreamed about. To the glory of His name, to the proclamation of the great reasons for our hope, we pray. Amen.